You're listening to Well I Laughed, part two of Smoke and Mirrors, pieced together. That's what, when he said he got jury duty, I was like, are you- Lucky. You got jury duty? (laughs) Every person knows one person that has never once been selected ever. That's me. And takes it as a personal sign from the universe that their judgment isn't good enough or something. So my favorite thing to do is um, go to jury duty. Also, because jury duty starts way later than my actual workday does, by at least an hour and a half. I show up at 7.45. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) When did you have to show up at school, in high school? I started at 9. Okay, well, I have a lot less sympathy for you. Um, (laughs) But it's also a lot quieter of a morning. I have one AirPod in. Gotta listen for the announcements. Yes. And I'm uh, watching TikTok on top of the book I told myself I was going to read when I was there. And then you get pulled in. And I know you guys heard the story. Danny and I ended up being pulled into the same room last time. And then, like, kind of right around the noon hour, they were like, would anyone be under an undue hardship uh, if they had to do this? (laughs) And I raised my hand and I was like... I'm a public speaking teacher, and um, you know I'm the only person that can really adjudicate the students' final performances. Like, there's not like a sub we could get in to yeah. do that, and the semester ends in a week. And so they were like, "Juror number 22, you're free to go." They only needed six, so I knew I wasn't really on the like edge of getting pulled yeah. in. Um, but everyone else, because I know, because Danny told me, <laughs> I had to stay until 5:30, and I got lunch and took a nap. <laughs> <laughs> I love jury duty. (laughs) Whenever I think about jury duty, I think of Stanley in the office where he's like talking to Toby after he comes back from the Scranton Strangler trial. And he's like, he's like asking, he's like, so how is it? (laughs) Did they feed you? He's like, oh, I bet they did. And he's like sitting there. He's like, I've been trying to get on jury duty since I turned 18 to get to sit in an air conditioned room and judge people. Mm, that's the life. <laughs> and that hits. <laughs> um, I think I'm probably allowed to say this. I don't remember signing an NDA or anything when I was there. Oh, yeah. During one of the jurors, because also the trial's definitely done. Yeah. yeah what's trial um, one of the potential jurors, uh, they're like, well, what do you do, ma'am? And she goes, well, I'm a philanthropist, and I like to donate money to various like art organizations and scholarship programs. So you're unemployed. But, with a lot of money. <laughs> but then this follow-up question was, thank you ma'am and have you ever been involved in a lawsuit and she goes well my stepchildren did sue me for their father's inheritance <laughs> 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 oh my god so her dream job she won it in court <laughs> that's hilarious i'm afraid we're gonna lose all banter before we actually start recording well, we are recording. So. But like useful things. <laughs> Cut in right there. <laughs> I'm afraid we're going to stop. No, I think it, I think they would love an ominous voice off screen, especially kind of for what my topic is today. The invisible hand? Sure. You know I don't believe in economics, though. And we can he use might that. as well <laughs> cover trickle-down economics. <laughs> trickle-down in economics and other fantasies by Casey. <laughs> He is very vanilla. I don't know why, but in my brain, <laughs> immediately the song that started playing was Your Body is a Wonderland. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was like a, oh, well, not even that. I think it was like a, <laughs> yeah. like your body is five foot five. 
little bit too logical, you know? Whimsy also got allowed in Casey's no. mind. Whimsical is one of my favorite feelings. Is it? Yeah, Are you being flippant with me? No. This week's vocab word. You tell me you don't have the speech and debate kids doing membean? What's mem? We do the New York Day Weekly Quiz. Oh, membean is like, uh, imagine uh, I am. Duolingo for learning new words. Mm. No, they can't use their phones. Is, it's an app, right? Uh, when I, it was like a website. Was it? So I uh, yeah, went to college and got a degree in education. <laughs> and that is where I learned uh, how to teach vocab acquisition. So I use my UNO degree. <laughs> no free advertising. <laughs> You're just always so nice. And I think I'm nice back like 25% of the time. I'm used to it. He's I, engaged to me. I'm like really not nice. Wait, are you guys friends? <laughs> That's fun. The only time that Weird I think chemistry. Casey can really tell that I'm being affectionate and loving towards him is when I'm mean to other people on mm, his behalf. Nice. Not in person. It's not okay. I'd already planned on being mean to her anyways, Kelly. <laughs> That's how I feel. It's actually super cute because like, what, 10, 18, three seconds ago when you were talking about Casey being hurt. I saw like true love and compassion on your face <laughs> as you were disappointed in him. And it was just like, again, I've said this in other episodes. I'm just like, wow. <laughs> 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 I actually have no further comment. <laughs> your honor, I respect you. 100%. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, but I think I am ready to go. So okay, bye. I'll be <laughs> Thanks for the drink. Oh, I need to use my phone because it's my story today. <laughs> Casey, you also need to tell me what you want to be for Halloween. Your AV club Barbie. Because you have about a week until I say fuck it and I'm not helping you. See, this is why we need to hang out more because of course you got to order it in September. Of course you do. Exactly. Yeah. I always think about it on like October 20th. Last week, I didn't start making our costume. Or last year, I didn't start making our costumes until the week before. Mm. That was a fucking mistake. <laughs> I'm not doing that again. Here. I'm so excited for it to be fall. We have two days where it peaks in the 70s next week, and I'm so excited. And because <laughs> you ruined God, this for me. See you. <laughs> also, I feel empowered to say this because by the time we publish, we will be back. Yes. But literally everywhere we are going on our vacation, um, I think the high is like 74. <gasps> And I think that's like actually seven to eight degrees warmer than basically the rest of the days. I might bring one shirt and seven different crew neck sweaters. You're gonna be so hot in a crew neck sweater. Not if it's 64. That's fair. That does make my packing scenario a lot more difficult. I'm sorry. You don't have to wear a crew neck sweater just because I am if it makes you feel any better. Well, yeah, but it's a lot easier. Like when I went to the music festival in Virginia, I brought so many options because it was all just like shorts and t-shirts. Right. I had so much room. Yes. In my suit. I literally packed like 18 outfits and I was there for three days. This is me when I go hiking, but like on a long hiking trip, specifically with bandanas. I'm like the amount of room for bandanas is literally unlimited. Infinite. And I, the last thing I want is to be in the middle of nowhere and not accessorize the way I had envisioned that morning. Fair. Have you ever been on a hiking trail going through your box like a raccoon, being like, I swear I brought the green one. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then like you didn't and you have to go on the hike anyways. Yeah. That's fair. Like are you like I, so it's I, not the same. I love being out in nature. I love being gay out in nature. <laughs> and I don't mean like gay out in nature. Yeah. I mean like this outfit was thought of. Yeah. 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 I feel that. How was Virginia, by the way? I don't think we actually got a chance to talk about it last time we hung out. Noah Khan. Mm. I feel I saw him at Mission Ballroom when he came kind of on accident. It was sure. like right when he was getting really popular. And my friend is like an angel and always finds all these concerts for us. And so she found this concert for Noah Khan. She was like, do you want to go to this concert? And I was like, I have no idea who that is, but sure. Right. Tickets were $20. <laughs> Oh my god. $20 when I bought them. She bought them probably like around this time and he performed in like February or something like that. Okay, she bought them like what, six months out? Yeah, she she bought them probably like right shortly after they went on sale and they were 20 bucks. And then when wow. by the time the concert came around, resale was at like four hundred. Oh, I'm sure they were, especially Mission yeah. Ballroom too. Yeah, and so I went there and like I had been listening to him the week before, and like it was a good concert. Don't get me wrong, right. he's great live. The vibes were immaculate, but like I didn't really know him mm. that well. And so now that I've had a chance to like really like like bring his music into like what I listen to every day, right. seeing him live is amazing. <laughs> and it was his first festival that he'd headlined I think is what he said and the like lights came on and he just like happy puppy dog face <laughs> he was just so stoked to be there and everyone was like oh well, and the cool thing about folk musicians I mean he's kind of like new age folk mm-hmm. is that they always sound so good live yep it's like that kind of music like the raspier I don't know if that's the word mm-hmm. you are like the hotter it sounds I love it and then he was amazing and I was like that was an amazing concert mm. and then oh, who's here <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that man did something to me mm. <laughs> I was the I, Irish are famous for that <laughs> I found out he owns bees <laughs> I mean, he's obviously beekeeping <laughs> And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I, like, have somehow ended up on, like, Hosier TikTok because I've, like, I think I, like, tagged him in something. And sure. now Instagram's, like, Hosier? Um, and I saw a video of him reading tweets about himself. Mm. And one of them was, like, Hosier sings, like, he knows how to make love to a woman oh. or something like that. And, like, stuff like that. You know he does. And he didn't even blush. He was like, that's good. <laughs> or something like that. Oh, wow. Thanks. <laughs> but he was fucking amazing live. Um. And then he brought out Noah Khan, and the entire crowd absolutely lost their shit for five minutes. So Before we move too far past bees, okay. I feel like Casey, I know, I know. I feel like Casey would need me to say this. Okay. There is this tradition called telling the bees. Okay. And it's in like medieval ancient. It's been around forever. Oh. Where when news of the world happens... You inform the bees. the bees, and it like keeps them happy or pleases like the bee spirits. I don't know, but you have to tell the bees. And well, you know, in England, a lot of people keep bees, including the royal household. So the BBC had a headline that said, "The bees have been informed of the queen's death." <gasps> <No>! <laughs> <laughs> Second. Um, okay. Uh, you'll go ahead. <laughs> wow, my brain cannot process that <laughs> headline. But the fact that there's a tradition dating that far back mm-hmm. that you need to inform the bees mm-hmm. makes me feel, <laughs> brings me back to the uncontacted tribes <laughs> and like them being so scared of us. 
And like, why are they so scared of us? Probably mm. because we're bad people. <laughs> but like, why do we have to tell the bees? The thing that makes me so happy is that you know that like that kind of stuff doesn't actually get joked about. It's funny, but it happens. So you know, someone one day was like, well, I'm I'm off to tell the bees. And then I had to like tromp through a yard and be like, attention bees, her royal highness, the queen of United Kingdom. Has passed. <laughs> and then I would love to know what the bees did after that. Cause we paused in America. Yeah, we at least were like, damn. Um, All right. Second, I saw a tweet the weekend you were in Virginia. Okay. That was like, hey everyone, I just want you to know if you like got a chance to see Noah Khan and Hosier, I don't think anything good should ever happen to you again. <laughs> <laughs> I told, because this is another one that I didn't find. Mm. It was Aspen that found it. And I like, every time she does this, I like appreciate her so much. And I'm so happy when I get right. there. But I always like forget until like right up until. So mm. it was like very much last minute. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to see. And I told Abby, the one that you've met. And she went, she looked at me and went, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> like not a single person because in your life she, is happy yeah, for you. She hit. <laughs> It was like her 300th F45 class on Saturday, and she was like, do you want to come to F45? It's my like 300 class. And I was like, oh, I would love to, but I'm going to be in Virginia. And they're like, oh, that's great. Why? I was like, I'm seeing Hosea and Noah Connors. She was like, just like, you bitch. Those are my husbands. I that so much. But also, I think you're playing a really crucial role in that environment. Everyone, hopefully, if you're lucky enough, mm -hmm. knows the person who finds the concerts, but then wants to go with people. Yeah. And so you just are that, like, basically automatic yes. I am that way with Jacob and EDM concerts. <laughs> I would love to go to an EDM concert with Jacob. Right. You, yes, everyone would. It's actually a really... I feel like really... he would be a bop. He is. Yeah. Oh, he is. <laughs> He's a great time, but I can't tell you the almost embarrassed to admit this. The number of times I've like said yes, and then a couple weeks later, that notification pops oh, up yeah. on our shared calendar. Because like, oh, me, Jacob, and Lydia have a shared calendar. They won't invite anyone else. Yes, to it. they're married. We're codependent. I want to be on the calendar. <laughs> Everyone wants to be part of the calendar. <laughs> Anyways, the notification will pop up that morning or like the day before that I'm like going to Red Rocks to see an EDM concert. And so I need to get familiar with like the artists. Yeah, so you binge listen to everything. But I force the kids to too during our work time. So kids will walk in and they'll be like, Mr. What is this? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're so used to like lo-fi beats to yeah. study and listen to or Bon Iver's For mm. Emma Forever Ago album. Yeah, That's I know, I'm one. a great teacher. A and they're one. like, what? Why are you playing Flume right now? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to a concert tonight. You're like, mind your business. <laughs> By the time I get home from work, I'm like, Pretty versed. That's fair. <laughs> a lot of work time those days, usually. I love that for you. <laughs> so you. So you're feeling okay? Been a good week for you so far? Yeah, so I had therapy today. Right. And I did tell Grant a little bit. There is one specific thing I did not tell him. I wasn't specifically trying to cue this up, by the way. I'm glad you're talking about it. But if anyone's like, wow, Grant seems really jovial for trying to get Maya to talk about therapy thrilled she's talking about it. <laughs> it wasn't like on a, we, we don't have a little sheet of paper where no, we like no. move the clippy down. <laughs> no, he came in and we were like talking and I was like, I might want to talk about this on the podcast. And he was like, well, if you do, I'll act like I've never heard it. <laughs> and then you didn't say anything. No, I, d I did tell you some of it, but I have been like stressed out about the podcast for like a number of reasons. There's some editing things that 
I'm having trouble with. You're great. It's not you. It's us. Yeah, you're great. It's the camera that is currently looking at us right now that I have some beef with. So join our Patreon. It's at Well I Laugh Podcast. No. <laughs> he still doesn't know. Um, but yeah, so I got on my, I have a like a telehealth therapist because okay. I have ADHD and God forbid I have to drive somewhere to go to therapy because that wouldn't happen. But I got on and started like ranting about how I was stressed and how I like procrastinated and it's been a whole thing. And she looked, or she like kind of looked at me and she's like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> she was like, you're being way too hard on yourself. Mm. It doesn't need to be perfect. Your audience doesn't love you because everything's perfect. Your audience loves you and like your co-host mm. for whatever you bring to the table. And I like was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. But like, it makes me mad because if I hadn't procrastinated this, I would have had enough time to figure it out. And if I'd had enough time to figure it out, it would have been perfect. And so now I feel bad that because I need to make it perfect because I procrastinated because it's my fault. And now I have to make it perfect so that everyone understands that I like care a lot. And she was like, if I can be like a little unprofessional, <laughs> that is the most raised in an Asian household thing I have ever heard. <laughs> and I was like, so uh, what you're what you're telling me is you are wrestling with the, your inherent worth is not tied to what you can produce. I'll mm. let you know when I get over that myself, and we can <laughs> That'd compare be notes. really great. We can compare notes. Someone who's five years ahead, maybe on that yeah. journey. We can talk. <laughs> I feel like she she read me like a fucking book. Mm. She was like, Maya's not really listening. Like she'll listen to me, but she won't internalize it. I really need to like get on her level, which is down. <laughs> <laughs> give her some low tough love low blows it's <laughs> like the way that that changed the way that i thought about it so fast good good she i like while i was on the therapy appointment with her i like texted one of our like podcast friends good. to ask for help and she was like see you have people that can help you. Now go on and get some snacks, and mm. then you'll reward yourself with the snacks every time you do something that you don't want to do. Dear listener, I uh, I am not the podcast friend she texted. No. It was a technical issue, and one, she knows I wouldn't know, and two, she knows I would defer to you exactly. anyways. I don't think, I think it's been a while since I've said this, so to those new to the podcast, welcome. We were saying this when there was 40 of you. Um, Maya, especially early on, when we were setting everything up, would text me a question, and I would respond with, hey, if you want a thought partner on this, absolutely. Let's mm -hmm. like let's wrestle with it for a second. If you have already figured out the correct answer, and are now just kind of in a polite, kind way, trying to solicit my opinion, I fully trust you. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> and almost always the answer was, it's done. <laughs> Good, because I already did exactly. it. <laughs> also, they're like trying to come at you at your level thing. The first week of school, I was looking at my varsity debate students and I was like, yeah, and like, you know, I got to step out to this meeting real quick, but I think there's going to be several new like kind of underclassmen who are going to come. And you know, like when they come in, just going to like riz them up for a second. Yeah. And my, my seniors went, what? <laughs> and I go like, yeah, like riz them up. And they're like, Mister, what do you think rhythm up means? And I'm like, you know, like talk them up, like kind of like hype them up, get them excited about this. And they went, that is not what that term means. Active flirt with the intention of like making plans. 
I essentially was like, hey, like, so when I'm gone, you should pre-Netflix and chill with these underclassmen who are coming. And that's why I don't ever try to get on their level anymore. See, here's the thing is that I would have picked that up for context clues. And that's why I'm so not street smart at all. Because people will say things and be like, I think I know what they meant. Yeah, welcome to teach you. Yeah. Did not know what they meant. And so then, like, after a week had passed, I then started to intentionally use it incorrectly. Right. Mm-hmm. I was like, OK, so I was like about to run this lesson. So like me and Miss Sam were like really risen each other up. And they'd be like, boo, stop, mister. I'm like, no, you understand sarcasm. Everything, <laughs> everything's a lesson. Bow, bow, bow. And now I have the upper hand again. <laughs> like Anyways, no it's been 53 and a half quarter minutes. Go ahead and head to your next class. <laughs> <laughs> I love my job. I really do, but it's so easy to make fun of. The 53 and a half quarter minutes. Yeah. Um, well, good. So it sounds like you're in a pretty good place. Yeah? Yeah. The therapy was okay. Usually... When I have therapy, or at least recently, sure. when I've had therapy, I, like Casey will come home and he was like, "How's therapy?" Mm-hmm. Like, he's like the feeling the waters outside. and he's like, "How's therapy?" And half the time I'll be like, "It was fine," and he's like, "Okay." But is <laughs> the lights off or off? <laughs> <laughs> Can I bring you some chocolate? <laughs> yeah, but today was fine. Today she really like was like. If you need to, just like tell your listeners that your therapist told you that you can't try and make this perfect. Mm. Like as long as you don't say my name, say whatever you want about me. And I was like, <laughs> I might. I also, might. <laughs> the uh, the video, which is what we lost, is really like the big loser in that equation is yeah. YouTube, which one well, the reels. still has sure, but we got plenty of stuff. We're magic. I'm still I mad think. about it. Um, but it's like YouTube is the last platform where we have yet to get a single mean thing said to us. We have the most supportive YouTube community. Well. Have you been deleting some stuff? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to choose to live in my fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) Surprising no one. We haven't, I don't don't think we've said what happened with the camera. The camera cut out after about 15 minutes and it was an hour long episode. And so now we're just lost 45 minutes of video. And so now we can't make reels of that with like our faces at least. The third episode we've like kind of lost in this 17 episode arc. I know, I like almost got into that with my therapist and I was like, let's not actually. We know so, you, we, (laughs) you know so much more now than you did in February. That's so true, though. <laughs> oh, man. How long have we been recording for so far? Oh, I don't know. I just okay. was re-centering it because it was weird since I had something else open before. It's um, been like half hour. Nice. Fun. Um, oh, good. It sounds like today was a pretty good day. Yeah, it was fine. Nice. It was boring. Um, work week for me is kind of packed. The Monday off was nice. It was just Labor Day. I know this mm-hmm. is coming out in like mid to late September, but it was just Labor Day. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if this is true for your workplace. When you have a four-day work week, you still have five days of work you got to produce. Oh, no. And it's like, oh, I didn't have any classes that I had to teach, which was nice. But I also then didn't have the two plan periods where mm. I get like a lot of like paperwork and like family communication and like grading stuff done. So it's like... Like every day, and today's Wednesday. Like super excited about this. This is the highlight of the week. I'm also a member or part of a couple different like kind of leadership positions within the activity. And we had a virtual meeting yesterday, mm-hmm. and a different organization has a virtual meeting tomorrow. So it's just kind of like long full days, 
intermixed with naps on the couch where I stop breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Just practicing death. Yeah, a little bit, but it's good. I mean, like really yeah. everything's, everything, there's nothing new really to report, which got, is nice. So we just moved into a new office space for mm. my for my work and it's in the same building, just like up to one of the top floors and right. it's a bigger space and it's brand new. So okay. it's like fancy. We all have like standing desks and like dual monitors and all of that cool stuff. We actually have like our own little break room now instead of having to go to like one of the office-wide communal ones. Sure. And it's like first day of school vibes, like big time. That's so cute. Because everyone's what like- What outfit did you wear? <laughs> everyone's dying to know. Not this one. Okay. Um, <laughs> she looks amazing. She just casually has corduroy pants on right These now. are like one of two pairs of office pants that I have right now. And I have only, I usually at max will go into the office twice a week, but now I have worn both of them. Mm. And I have to go in again. <laughs> Tomorrow's the like, third day. <laughs> will anyone notice if I wear no. the first one again? They won't. No, they won't. Um, I work with a bunch of men. So. Correct. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. First day of school vibes. It's it's interesting because now we have the bigger office space. We got a new office space because we outgrew the other one, so okay. it's too small. Um, but still, there's a lot of people that are working from home, so it's like half the people are there and set up, and half the people their stuff is still in boxes from like the old place. So it's weird. Right. But I spent like two hours. I'm like still really light on work. I'm like in, in between projects, so I was like what can I do in the office? And mm -hmm. so I like unpacked a bunch of plates. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was so fun. I have actually given this advice to many, particularly my debate girls when they're seniors. Mm -hmm. I say, hey, I, I can say several of you are about to become interns mm -hmm. here soon. Um, like first week, make the worst pot of coffee of your life. Yeah. And then you will never be asked to do it again. And that's so crucial that you don't become... Because mm -hmm. cause the assumption will be, even if it's not said, that you do some of those like secretarial household yeah. tasks. And so I hope you made a really weak pot of coffee today at work. We got a Keurig, so. <laughs> nice, okay. No coffee was uh, made. I did reorganize the entire kitchen because it bombed. I don't know why they put the things where they put them, but it made me mad. No, I know. That's what I'm laughing at, is that yeah. you would walk into this kitchen and be like, well, I can't work like this. So. <laughs> I've done that in my own kitchen. <laughs> Imagine at one point someone walks in and all of the mugs are shoved onto the table as you move like a colander for some yeah. reason into like a different cabinet. What I really did is I just took a long lunch because I did have an hour for lunch and then I spent like mm. the se a second hour helping like get stuff situated and like I have a light workload so I don't think anybody really cared. But every time I was in the kitchen, I would also, some of our cabinets were really up high <laughs> and so I was like standing on chairs lowering the shelves so that we could reach <laughs> everything and there's like these men that would walk in periodically to get like a new coffee and they're like is she okay is she okay is she okay like what's, what's happening right now why do i have to talk to you while i'm heating up my lunch i do would rather die legit have to go five days a week every week now no. oh okay uh, thank god for that i'm pretty sure they know if they made us do that we would all quit, all quit. yeah so i think they're saying three to four i'm gonna probably mm. do to uh -huh. three. Well, you have two work pants, so. Two work pants. Give I did you a order. Pants stipend or two is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that how private America, corporate America works? Yeah. I don't know what could possibly be wrong with that. <laughs> um, yeah, so we'll see. Nice. Well, I am super excited to share tonight's story. It was one, I told her this when I walked in, or when I, like, at, in the middle of the day, I was like, oh yeah, I got this guy wrapped up. I just have to finish one last article, and that's just to make sure there's not, like, one little good gem left. Yeah. Article was longer than I thought it was, and, uh... 
was not almost done to wrapping it up. So I've been like living in the story for the last two, three hours and I'm really excited. Smoke and Mirrors, when you first pitched me, I was like, oh yes, like kind of misdirection, intrigue. And when I think of Smoke and Mirrors, I'm like, what I think and what I see is not what actually appears in front of me, okay? Yeah. So as a little primer to the actual story, I'm gonna ask you this question. Do you know what novel the September 11th terrorist attacks inspired? What novel they uh-huh. inspired? Oh, man. I feel like I should, but I don't. This is a bit of um, kind of like a Reddit conspiracy. It like I the feel links like it has there, nothing to but do it's with... weak. No, it has yeah. nothing to do with I feel the like attacks. it's like, I don't know, like life in New York City or something like that. Kind of close, actually, okay. for a specific group of people. Uh, strung together on a Reddit theory. So this is me saying right now. Reddit. People come for me. This is not a GT Did you original. know that's... Brandon Lee Morgan? <laughs> yes, I did. I tried to quote him. That is my trauma. I love that Brandon is my trauma. Morgan. Same. It's the best thing. That's why I quoted him. Anyways, so um, the September 11th attacks happen. Yes. It's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. For those of us who are alive at the time, it's like shattering. I'm in third grade, so I'm like, what? This is weird. For older adults, it like really rocked them. Watching the attacks in New York is a man who in that moment then has an existential crisis Mm -hmm. and decides that he is not happy with what he's been doing with his life. He decides that he's going to follow his passion, which is music, and founds the band My Chemical Romance. My Chemical Romance then produces a bunch of songs, which then get listened to by a certain author of Twilight, who identifies the music of My Chemical Romance with the Jacob character in Twilight. And of course, we all know what novel Twilight produced after it lived as fan fiction on the internet. Fifty Shades of Grey (laughs) is fanfic that reimagines those characters' energies not as vampire werewolf that teens, makes so much but sense. in New York City. So in an absolute historical dominoes, these links are kind of weak, but 9-11 wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, 20 no. years later, oh, no. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> so, so you know how you kind of like feel right yeah. now? I have, in my opinion, an even better historical version of that story. It's going to get triggered by a volcano in Indonesia. I legitimately have no idea where this story is going. Um, so, Maya, to now start the notes, how does a volcanic expl- eruption create some of our most well-known uh, genres today? that even actually have a weird tie-in to Twilight. Well, I'm really excited to tell you that story. Because <laughs> I have no idea. I'm going to hit you with a name, and maybe you know it, maybe you don't. It's okay. It'll probably come to you later if you don't know it. Okay. If I were to say the phrase, Mary Shelley was born in 1797. Mm. Frankenstein. Would you... Oh, okay. Cool. Buckle up. <laughs> we're about to learn the truth behind the woman and the book, Frankenstein. <gasps> there is... 
more information on my phone for this episode than in any other episode I have done before. And I've talked about legal conservatorships and the science of birth control. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> so then the real question is, how, do, how does a volcanic explosion create Frankenstein's monster is kind of like where we're getting to, but then there's like so much more. Yeah! Um, Mary Shelley was born in 1797. Her mother died only 11 days after her birth. Despite this, her father ensured she was educated and grew up in a blended household, which was fairly unusual at the time. But the really interesting about Mary Shelley's life, her family, and the people she would interact with is that Basically, their entire lives were unconventional, unusual, framed by their radical politics and philosophies, and would be, I would say, probably curious and intriguing mm -hmm. even in 2023, <laughs> but like in the best way possible. Oh. So Mary Shelley, who was she? What was going on? Well, many people report that as a child, she was a free spirit, highly educated, and oh yeah, at the age of 16, eloped in Italy <laughs> Dream. to the poet Percy Bessie, B-Y-S-S-H-E, Percy Bessie Shelley, Percy which is where she gets his last name, <gasps> who praised, quote, the irresistible wildness and sublimity of her feelings. Fun reminder, she was 16 and children are not interesting in that way. I know I'm a professional. <laughs> How old was he? Um, uh, in his early 20s and mm. married to someone else. All of that to come. Already, though, I have to pause for a little story. Um, I've had the privilege of teaching at the school that I teach at right now for many years, mm -hmm. and that's been a privilege. Long enough for there to be several classes that have graduated, mm -hmm. um, specifically from the speech and debate program. A couple years ago, some of the graduates, a year or two after college, invited me to dinner and it was so sweet. Uh, we're getting actually pho at a restaurant in the neighborhood and we're chatting and they all kind of look at each other at one point. There's probably three or four of them. And they go, mister, can we tell you the most important lesson you taught us in high school? And I'm having this like Tuesday with Maury kind of like, yes, children. Oh. How did I shape your lives, right? See, that's how we're different, is that my immediate reaction would be like, oh, shit. Well, see, that's what my reaction showed him. <laughs> <laughs> they go, we got off to college, and we realized you were right. No one's interesting until they're 23. <laughs> see, I, in an attempt to get them to leave my room one night, when they were heartbroken, looked at them, and I said, oh, my God. Get over yourself. <laughs> you oh, shouldn't date in God. high school anyways. No one's interesting until they're 23. <laughs> I want to point out that that's never my first reaction to a child having a bad time. But I think part of me was like, oh my God, you knew him for a week. <laughs> <laughs> Get out. He, he cannot pass biology. Like, we got like, oh my God, you are brilliant. You're so smart. And your life is going to be so much bigger than like this little thing right here. And I have dinner plans. <laughs> and so like, I just can't mourn for you in the way you want me to. No one interesting to other 23 get out That's and they fair. were like you were right about that that's super fair 
Mary Shelley was married at 16. <laughs> Didn't she also write Frankenstein when she was like hella young? We're, oh, yeah, we're getting there. We're, there's, I'm so excited about this okay. episode. Okay, so just a reminder, uh, children aren't interested, aren't interesting in that way. <laughs> but also, um, Mary Shelley had a really interesting childhood. Again, more to come. Sorry, y'all, not to tease it out. It's just really hard to layer a story like yeah. this that has no, so fair. many... Uh, Kind of like angles to it. Yeah. So Mary and Percy each encouraged each other's writings. And they married in 1816. Um, Shortly after uh, Percy's wife died, um, death by suicide. Which, of course, was a tragedy because Mary was kind of um, friends with her. (gasps) Yeah, kind of. I think post the whole like thing yeah. like uh, it was also though still a scandal in a lot of ways um wait so did they get married before she died so uh, it was kind of more like they eloped while percy was married Ooh. Mm-hmm. also i'm not sure if the article i read used eloped in like the verb sense or mm. in like the noun sense like they went off to italy and lived together or like sealed a yeah. ceremony or both um, and then a little bit of tragedy, which we will talk about more oh, yeah. later. Over the course of their marriage, Mary and Percy will have five children, only one oh, of God. whom will live to adulthood. Oh, God. Yeah. So perhaps the thing that is most known for is the book that she wrote, which we all know today as Frankenstein, um, specifically Dr. Frankenstein's mm-hmm. monster. Yes. If you're going to survive this episode, you need to know that the man who created the monster his name's Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. So when you're talking about Dr. Frankenstein, you're talking about the doctor scientist. When you're talking about the monster, which is what they call him in the book, his name is Monster. Or The, <laughs> the monster. monster. Or in the playbill, the first time this was staged in yeah. the 1820s in London, it was just a blank line. A nameless monster. Mary Shelley thought it most appropriate. This That's hilarious. So um, So... Let's talk about how the volcano is yeah, involved I in all of this. I have a lot of questions. So in 1816, a mountain called Mount Tamora, I want to make sure I say this right. Um, yes, Mount Tambora, T-A-B-M-O-R-A. Mount Tambora in Tabmora? Tabmora. Tabmora. Yeah. In Indonesia erupts. And it's such a huge eruption and throws so much soot and other mm-hmm. debris that it literally blocks out the sun. And the year 1816 gets referred to as uh, the year without summer. Whew. Because global temperatures drop. drop. Mm-hmm. Um, in Europe, famine actually like happens because like the harvest fails. Oh. Uh, but Mary Shelley and Percy were like kind of aristocratic. I mean, they mm. weren't like loaded, but they so weren't. So they weren't like facing weren't the surfs. issues. No, they went on a vacation to Lake Geneva. Wow. In Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> and it was there that the important things um, are going to transpire. So okay. they are invited. Let me find this exactly. I'm sorry. One second. You're good. So it's 1816. Mm-hmm. Mary and Percy make their way down to Lake Geneva in Switzerland because they've been invited by their friend Lord Byron, which is probably a name that you recognize, and we're going to get into more into him later. And it is in Lake Geneva that Lord Byron proposes to Mary Shelley and several other people that they have a ghost writing competition. Not ghost writing in like our modern sense where you, like, you secretly write the book and get someone else's name on yeah. it. They are all to write their own ghost story. Because again, everything kind of gloomy they're like on vacation in lake geneva but everything's kind of gloomy and so 
Mary Shelley sits down in in 1816, in the middle of summer, but a gloomy summer, Mm -hmm. writes the book Frankenstein as part of Lord Byron's writing competition. Oh, it's going to drive me nuts. Why can't I recognize his name? (laughs) He was a philanderer, a cheat, a playboy, a really interesting dude, probably pansexual, had a club foot, like a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. The amount of really interesting people had to be like, nope, 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 nope. Gotta get get back to Mary Shelley in this whole story. (laughs) That happened many times. So she uh, writes Frankenstein. That's not the shocker. She is inspired by the work of Luigi Galvani. And that like research is really recent and is happening in Italy and helps inspire her work. What did Luigi Galvani do? Yeah, he was the guy that electrocuted frog legs to get them to move. I hate that. But you know what I'm talking yes, about, right? Yes, yes, so that yes. was at the time a huge breakthrough. But Luigi was wrong. Luigi thought um, that this proved, quote, that every animal had an electric spirit. Essentially, he <laughs> thought he was literally electrifying your soul as proof it exists. Imagine him on a dating app. Come back to my place and uh, I'll go. I got like- a, def- a defibrillator. <laughs> Which is actually... I wanna push you around. Well, I will. Well, I will. No, but um, his work work did directly lead to the invention of the defibrillator. Okay. Like, like, I'm gonna electrify you tonight, baby. Like, what? So Luigi Galvani was like, when I take electricity, muscles move. No shit! Souls exist. Right. So he did that first, and his nephew goes, "Mm mm-hmm, interesting, interesting. Okay. Kind of different take, but I'm going to wait for you to die. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm going to kind of do my own things kind of later. So, wait, so his son is the one that invented the defibrillator? N- nephew. And nephew. no, they don't invent the defibrillator, but their they, research. The, like, and they're like, what you can do when you electrify muscles and cells. They're the, like kind of the first people in Western medicine to like do something like that. Um, <laughs> the nephew carried it out. Um, and the nephew was like, I don't know if we're electrifying souls, but maybe we are. And I think the way to figure out if we're doing that or not is to electrify people suffering from insanity. And we're going to see if it works. And do you know what the absolute crazy thing is? Everything you just said. What? Today, electroshock therapy is a recognized treatment for for people who suffer from severe major depression. I'm going to let you sit with that for a second because in the next sentence I have, is even crazier. I thought you were going to say homosexuality. No. That's where I thought you were going. That's been disproven. Thank you, Utah. So, (laughs) it goes from you to me, (laughs) and I don't think I like it. (laughs) So, so electroshock therapy is a today, like, fairly common treatment for people who suffer from major medical depression with about a 50% success rate. Major medical depression or major medical, or sorry, major depressive disorder. Probably the second one, because that sounds like a phrase. And the thing I said that's what was I hinting have. to it. Um, it's, no, I think it's like debilitating, <laughs> literally cannot okay, move like, or speak. Like, going, like getting institutionalized a for depression. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, you don't actually have to be that I like, intense. I have to get ketamine it and is, now electrocuted? It that's is crazy. also used as a treatment option for simply severely depressed pregnant mothers. <gasps> As it is the least harmful for the developing fetus. <laughs> what the 
Bop. Oh, this is also a great time to name my sources. Today's episode is brought to you by Wikipedia, as well as uh, the article Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley, Extraordinary Mothers and Daughters. <laughs> um, the article from the McCarter Organization, Mary Shelley's Haunted Life, and then an absolutely beautiful and thought-provoking, and I'm not even mad if you pause to go read it. I mean, you'll spoil like 80% of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the article, The Strange and Twisted Life of Frankenstein from The New Yorker. None of this is me made up. Like, uh, you can still see some of the hyperlinks from Wikipedia in this article. Yeah, so you can electrocute pregnant mothers um, and it apparently is least harmful to the child. I just feel like in that scene in Barbie when Will Ferrell's character comes out and the pregnant woman is there and he's like, oh mm. shit, I thought we discontinued her. Bitch. Exactly, bitch. <laughs> Uh, so uh, let's just do a quick little recap because I know we've hit you with a lot of like kind of crazy details early on. So um, the year is, I think at this point, 1818, getting close to, yeah, it's 1818. So back to Mary. She is 19 years old at this point. She has written a book. She has already lived a really big life. Has so, the book been published? Yes. Okay. Like I think it's just been published. Okay. Um, but before any of that, when she was a child... Wait, hold on. Yes. I'm confused. So she wrote the book in the same... Like, at the same time that she met Luigi. Never met Luigi. Just inspired by his work that's oh, happening Oh, so she knew time. about him yes. before she wrote Frankenstein. Correct. And that's what okay. inspired the book. Okay, okay, okay. And okay. then she wrote it as part of that writing competition, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. in 1816, 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then built it out from like a short story to a whole novel. And then at this point, it's published by 1818. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Um, so at this point, she's like 19 years old. Mm -hmm. She has given birth twice, <sighs> lost her first daughter, who was alive oh, for less no. than two weeks, but has a son named William. Um, but before she was a mother, she was married at 16. But before she was married at 16, mm -hmm. uh, her stepmother um, grew kind of jealous of her because... She, as she got older, looked more and more like her dead mother. And so stepmom sent her away to Scotland. And dad was like, hey. Sorry. Scotland's great. And like, I love you, you know? And um, uh, your mom ate your snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind bringing some back? <laughs> Sharing is caring. <laughs> forgot all about that. <laughs> I oh, just good. edited that yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. No, that was good. Yeah, so she uh, gets sent off to Scotland as a young child because the mother, she, she never knew. I mean, technically met, but her mom died when she was 11 days old. So the woman that she never met, who she keeps hearing stories about, and that apparently she is looking increasingly like, is the reason why she then gets sent to Scotland away from her only other living parent. And then when she returns, falls in love with essentially the very first person she meets, which is Percy, runs off to Italy, uh, gets married, writes this book, becomes friends with Lord Byron. Um, oh man, that's, that name is so familiar. Yes. By this point, by the time the book is published, she has been married for three years. Um, Damn. Percy is, I think, by the way, at this point, still married to a different woman back in England. And her marriage and partnership with Percy is strongly disavowed from her father, who's a famous philosopher at the time. Okay. Um, now, here comes the next kind of really interesting thing about all of them. Mary's 19, 20. Uh, well, Mary and Percy believed in a concept called free love, which in the Romantic era 
was specifically anti-marriage. So I think a lot of articles say they were married to like kind of help explain what that dynamic was. Yeah. But they were specifically not married, which is why they could live together while Percy was still married to a different woman back in England. Was she a proponent of free love? The other woman? Um... No, I don't think I don't think so. None of the articles are like, and all three of them live together. None of them say that. Cute, cute. So he was like, uh-huh. I need a new piece of ass. What will let me do that? Well, uh, followers of free love believe that anyone should be allowed to love anyone, even outside legal and societal constraints like marriage and a disapproving of infidelity. Although idealistically on board, this puts some strains on their relationship. What? For instance, it is wildly suspected that Mary's stepsister, who she was pretty close to, Claire Claremont, <laughs> what is the name? Claire. What are these names? It's uh, it's pretty well speculated that Mary's half sister Claire, Claire Claremont, um, <laughs> if you will, uh, Cece and Percy <laughs> had a sexual relationship together, which produced a child. <laughs> um, still, she at this point had given birth three times in her life. Her first daughter, which didn't last, didn't live more than two weeks, mm-hmm. um, then to her son William, who survived, and then to a daughter that would not survive past the first couple of days. And after the death of her second daughter, her first son William would then also die. <gasps> also happening around this time is she loses her half sister, um, not Claire, but a different one, yeah. and then Percy's still married wife dies as well and she is like relatively close to a lot of them so there's both infant death and adult death kind of surrounding her at what is essentially should be the peak of her career Frankenstein's this huge runaway success and she is surrounded by tragedy the way that I would need so much electro shock therapy yes if I were her I'm so I I'm, I don't want to say I'm so depressed I am depressed but I I don't want to have my own child. I think I've said this several times. Yeah. I have no interest in going through pregnancy. If that's your journey, that's I applaud you for that. I can't. I don't think I would enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can see myself wanting a kid, but I, I would prefer to adopt. Right. Also because I don't need another kind of depression mm. on top of the depression I already have, yeah, being and, postpartum depression. Right. And then what if that kid dies? Yeah. No, I would have not lived past the age of 14 in the 1800s. Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, one, a lot of people didn't. And two, um, let's go ahead and just kind of bookmark the intense amount of trauma that Mary Shelley experienced. Like, both right when she's stepping into her own adulthood, um, if you even want to call it that. I mean, some of these things are happening to her when she's 16, 17, 18 years old. I mean, I, I have... 16-year-olds in my sophomore class right now at school, right? Right. Who at that point would have been sent off to Scotland, came back, then moved to Italy, eloped, lived with a man who was married to someone else, had two, three kids, and lost, I think, all three of them. So to add to this crazy mix, um, Mary Shelley's life was always surrounded by really eccentric characters. Mm -hmm. Her mother and father, we're going to get into here in just a second, but her mother and father were both super famous and intellectuals considered like thought leaders in certain fields, things like that. Lord Byron, who was like a famous poet and things like that at the time, the philanderer. Poet. Poet. Her husband, (gasps) Percy, famous poet. And then at that writing competition at Lake Geneva, she became friends with a Dr. John Polidari, 
When I take one guess what Dr. John Polidari wrote, oh, he was the first person to ever write the book The Vampire. He's the creative Dracula. Correct. That's been on my list. So <laughs> I'm long. sorry. I mean, this is essentially the one sentence no, he gets I, mentioned in this I story, but it's like carry way, but... this Lake Geneva retreat sees the writing of the vampire, which is like a, kind of like a classic. Still, I like when you mentioned the retreat, I was like, yeah. oh man, that was where Dracula came out. Oh, I love it. That's the part that you know, because I've always found Frankenstein I, to be way more interesting. Because I, I was watching a documentary, I think I like like to put on something in the background when I'm doing like reading or editing or whatever, right. and it was a uh, like old abandoned mansions or something in Europe, yes. and they covered the mansion of the yes. guy that wrote Dracula, and so I think I remember something about that Lake Geneva retreat, and so I was like, bing, bing, bing. Yes. So what's so interesting is that the vampire still fits kind of into like the classic gothic style mm-hmm. of writing, which yeah, was yeah. popular. And then Mary Shelley's The Frankenstein kind of pioneered science fiction, fiction. Yes. which was an evolution of yeah. gothic. But I think man's influence and power being such an overt theme made it science fiction in its own. Yeah. And so yet another connection to Twilight. Um, yeah, 100%. <laughs> My eye just twitched for those of you who aren't on YouTube. <laughs> and so all of this is happening around her as all of this tragedy is happening too. And then um, kind of right after um, Frankenstein gets published and those two adult people who are close to her pass away, here's what happens. She would lose two more children during this time. That's crazy that all of this loss happened before she wrote Frankenstein. Yeah. Or like after she wrote Frankenstein. I guess she had some loss before. But like, I would have thought that the idea of Frankenstein would have come from all of that loss. But instead it's coming like So part of it came before. Yeah. Part of it came after. Yeah. And oh Maya. Oh Your AP English teacher would be so proud of you because page five has a lot to say about what you just hit on. We're all at the end of page one, top of page the two. The way that I live to try and impress my AP, <laughs> AP English, AP lit and whatever teachers, yeah. man, one of them hated me. One of them, I think, tolerated me. This so. is how you know that she did a good job because even still to this day, you're like, if I don't make Mrs. Walker proud or whatever her name What's was. Her name? Her name was Miss LaPlante. Me and Lee talked about her. LaPlante. LaPlante. She, and then she got divorced, and now she's Miss Chase. Mm. Well, good job to her. Sounds like she did some work. Shout out. And so I know this has been kind of all over the place. Shout out to past me who managed to pull everything together. Mm-hmm. So, so by the age of 25, Mary Shelley has suffered a horrific miscarriage that she only survives by being placed on ice at the last second. She has given birth five other times. Four of those children have died. She has lost her mother, who died before she Mm -hmm. ever had a chance to talk to her, and then at least two other important adult women in her life. And then, at the age of 25, the last tragedy will occur. Percy will set sail on the ocean and never return. (gasps) And she will lose her lover at the age of 25. I'm assuming he died and didn't just like. Correct. Yeah. Okay. People are actually not entirely sure he didn't intentionally sail into a storm it because he like suffered he from his own depression. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it wasn't like she was left uh, like the first wife was. I wonder because, I don't know, maybe this is my own mental health talking, but I wonder if because she's experienced so much loss. I wonder if she doesn't really process it like you mm. and I would process loss because she has experienced just like 
intense amounts of it. She's just like, this is what life is. You know, like if you have a weird experience with your parents and like you tell it to your friends and they're like, that was not normal. No one has experienced that but you. Yeah, I wonder if that's kind of what she was going Mm -hmm. through, that she doesn't really understand that life isn't normally like that. Well, I think we talked about this in like five to ten episodes ago, where we were talking about, you know, when you've experienced something that shapes you, like this kind of trauma would, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think we said something along the lines like, there's so much great work out there that you can do, and so Mm -hmm. many great books that you can read, but at the end of the day, there's like this hard truth that you have to come to, Mm -hmm. which is that once something like that has happened to you, it's happened to you. Yeah. And that's not like a permanent state of condition for you. And like learning to live with it. And so, yeah, she suffers some insane tragedies in the first half of her life where like no two years looked the same really. And it is during that time she writes the book that she will become most famous for. Now, I do have this like little bit of good news there's a little bit of sparkle and everything so um obviously so this is 1920 sorry 1822 she's 25 years old her husband or lover dies Mm -hmm. at sea um and she'll be in a majorly depressive episode for the next five years yeah naturally yeah that tracks um Starting in 1827, she'll begin to write again. And from 1827 to 1840, she will write prolifically and have another 13 years of writing. Her one child who survived, Percy Florence, named after the husband she loved and the city he was born in. (laughs) I read it because the article presented it as two sentences and it was like, Percy Florence, named after her beloved life partner. And Period. I was like, and, and the city he was born in. I was like, well, thank God his name's not Percy Dallas or something yeah. like that. Casey Atlanta. <laughs> Florence is a, a pretty name. It is. Florence Pugh. <laughs> Love you. I just kissed And remember, screen. it's a middle name, too. It's Percy Shelley Jr. Percy Florence Shelley. Yes. Jr. Yes. Would he um, technically be a junior, though, since his senior died? Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Because then if he were to have a kid named Percy Florence, it'd be Percy Florence the third, even though he never met the senior. I thought it resets. Nope. It is if the person right above you had that name, you're the junior or you're the next in line. Oh, so if it's like skipped a generation a or something. Bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because yeah, yeah. I, I seem to remember that there's that rule because I was always shocked because the royal family mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is... George like the that. third, and I was like, there's at least been 15 of you. Right. I'm yeah. not an expert on when it comes to that kind of stuff. That would make sense. But I can tell you guys, sense, I don't know if I've ever shared this on this podcast. So my name's Grant. That's not a surprise to anyone. My dad was the second born son in his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that meant he just got kind of whatever name he wanted. Yeah. Um, if my dad had been the first born son, I was my dad's firstborn son. Love right. my little brother. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is, my name was almost George Thomas the Fourth. <laughs> I know you can have a funny little podcast with a name like that. Let me tell you that. My <laughs> ex-boyfriend, the one that I was like officially in a relationship right before Casey, uh, his—I'm not going to disclose his whole name. Mm. He was several years older than the rest of us because he took a couple gap years to move to Colorado and establish his residency here so that he could get in-state tuition at Mines. He introduced himself to people as a bit, (laughs) as first name, middle initial, last name, the third. That's so funny. And no one ever like questioned him on it until, and I think like 
That's so funny. Maybe it was the end of freshman year because I knew him when I was a freshman. I didn't start dating him until I was sophomore or something. And I was like, are you the third? Because I like saw his dad's name or something. Right. And he was like, oh, no. I think it's just really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I was like... Literally, actually, maybe exactly conversely, this summer... I Literally, actually, maybe exactly, exactly conversely. conversely, this summer I almost went by Ran, which oh, are the I, three yes. little three letters in the middle of my first name. Yeah. It was only going to be at, like, at bars or like parties where I didn't like, know That's the host fair. or anything. I think it'd be so funny to be like, Ran, you know, like Ein. My <laughs> <laughs> Not my politics, obviously, but that's a funny joke. That is pretty funny. My mom, so my mom's full first name is Harumi, and okay. that's Japanese. It means, like, beautiful day. But it's really hard for people to pronounce for some reason. Mm. Um, just like with any... Say it one more time. Harumi. Harumi, okay. Like, seeing it... It's really spelled. similar to halloumi pasta, which is interesting. Yeah, but like if you see it spelled, I don't know why people like really struggle. They struggle with my name too because I think it's because it's three vowels in okay. a row. They like can't figure it out. I'm not sure what the deal is. But anyway, she gave up after a certain point Ooh. and she goes by Rumi as a nickname. Okay. And then for a while, whenever we would go to Starbucks and they would ask for your name, she would just give my name for a while, which <laughs> doesn't really work because they can't figure out my name either. <laughs> but anyway, she went to a dressing room, I think, at some point where they asked her what her name was. And she said Rumi, as she mm. does, and they misheard her and put Ruby. <laughs> and so that's how she just became Goes Ruby. by Ruby now? Not really, but like if she's in a place. At stores. Yeah, at stores or like at Starbucks <laughs> or something, she'll just be like Ruby. Griffin and I, when we are at Starbucks, just go by Thomas. There's something about the G-R that makes a really hard sound for people to hear when you're like mm. across the counter. No, that's super So fair. I've gone like, my, they're like, name for the order? And I'll be like, Grant. And they'll be like, Brant? And I'm like, when have you met a Brant? A Brant? <laughs> or I get a lot of Brents, which really? isn't my name like at all, you know? And so that's like, I'm like, I don't want to take this coffee. It's not mine. And then Griffin's name is Griffin, which I think has like a lot of the same yeah. stuff, a hard start of the sound mm -hmm. and then gets real soft at the end. Yeah. And so Griffin and I both go by Thomas. And so when we were in Omaha for his wedding, I think we were both at Starbucks and I ordered first. It's Thomas. And they were like, name for the order Thomas. And my brother goes, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the new John Mulaney skit? Uh, yes, I've now seen like the new stand-up special. Where yes. he's like talking about how he got stopped by officers when he was a kid and all three of their names was John. John. Yes. And they're like patting him down. Your name better not be, be John. John. He's like, they call me Baby J on these streets. <laughs> I think my name is a little different because I feel like people have heard it right. and recognize it. But then they, I watch every time as I say my name and they're like, oh, okay. And then they go to type it and they're like, right. oh no. <laughs> and it's so funny because I know it's either going to be M-A-Y-A, which right. is fine. I get it. Like Maya Rudolph. Yeah. Or it's going to be M-I-A. Sure. Which is me wrong. <laughs> which, is, which is my name. <laughs> or something else. Did I ever yeah. tell you that? So I went to a religious elementary school in one of my pastors. Yeah, you told me that. Oh, yeah. sorry, was that not the story? No, Ro <laughs> <laughs> I went to a religious elementary school and one of my pastors wrote me a birthday card and literally addressed me as Mafia. Oh, no. Oh, I have bad handwriting? Even I wouldn't pull off something like that. I wonder if it was bad handwriting and it, they meant to write Maria and it just looked like an F. When at a, when at a Catholic school, that's e probably a safe bet. E yeah, either way, I was offended. Anyway. I just want to point out, sorry, one last thing. 
Griffin and I are under no assumption that our names are hard to pronounce. Yeah, it's just like hard to hear. Like other names are, like your mom's name. Yeah. It's hard to hear, and then they write it down wrong, and then that game of telephone happens where you're like, I don't actually think that's my coffee, even though that is my order. Yeah, yeah. but then, I, like, I used to work at Starbucks, and this is the trick that I learned working as a barista at Starbucks, and it now makes me irritated whenever I go there and they don't do it, <laughs> is that if I was working in the register, I would only ask for a name if they didn't mm. pull their phone out to pay. Mm. Because if they pull their phone out to pay, it auto-fills it. Nice. So you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to have that moment. Yeah, and so I I will do anything to avoid embarrassment. Do you know whose name's actually really easy to pronounce? Tyler? Mary Jesus. Shelley. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Continuing. It's also Jesus, depends on who you're, who you're talking to. Uh, Mary Shelley, who um, in the 1840s apparently kind of like stops writing after a yeah. writing career. In the 1840s, her one living child, Percy Florence, and this is what the article said, oh, no. marries a woman who Mary Shelley adored. Okay. And she spent the last years of her life surrounded by loved ones as she aged. Oh, that makes me so happy. In 1851. Oh. And this was, I think, sweet at the time. Okay. A little creepy now, but I think very sweet at the okay. time. In 1851. Mary died of a brain tumor, which makes you hope that it kind of happened fast. Fast, yeah. After she died, her family cleared out the contents of her writing desk. In it, they found locks of of her children's hair, all five of them, as well as a parcel of Percy's cremated heart, which was wrapped in his last poem titled Adonis. Okay, not, I was going to say J. Edgar Hoover. Not a, what is his name now? I can't think of it. Edgar, Edgar Poe. Po. <laughs> I don't know. Not the founder of the FBI. <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover. No, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I have a couple questions. Yes. How did she get a lock of her child's hair if it was a miscarriage? I don't think that's one, but the four others, I okay. think, were born okay, with okay. some kind of hair or something. And I guess they recovered Percy's body after the drowning to be able to cremate part of him. Yeah, Damn. Yeah. That's dark. And she just kept them all there, the creator of science fiction, as she, like, wrote away. And we are going to reference at least one more piece of her work. Okay. This is, and I'm so sorry, listener, The Halfway Point. Also, I'm really sorry for my Edgar Allan Poe reference. No, that was so funny. I just, I, I felt it in my bones and I couldn't let it go. I actually think we're kind of now, we're past most of the tragedy. Okay. So okay. if you're like, oh, it's like kind of raining where I am on this Wednesday. It's kind of sad. Like, I think the saddest part's done. Yeah. I would say from this point on, everything's just super interesting. Yeah. And it's about kind of like the legacy of... Uh, Mary Shelley. So to start off understanding the legacy of Mary Shelley, Mm -hmm. it is important to understand the people who surrounded her Mm -hmm. and the people that she was often compared to. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was a radical and free thinker. She offered one of the books... Did you get it? (laughs) Do we need a It's just a bunch of syrup on the bottom. Good for you. Oh. A little bit, yeah. A little jazz hand action. Anyways, uh, she was Mary Mary Wollstonecraft was considered a radical and a free thinker. She authored one of the books that formed the foundation of the women's rights movement. What? The book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, was written in 1792 in the heat of the French Revolution. It upholds the importance of education for all women and attacks the sexual double standards prevalent at the time. Articulate concepts that still resonate today. Sorry, who wrote this? Mary Wollstonecraft, her mother who she never formally met. But this was published in 1870? 17, 
1792. Oh, 1792. Sorry. I thought oh, you, you said, said it came 18... from the grave. Se- yeah, I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, wait. Time machine? <laughs> no. No, 1792. Yeah. Okay. That book, along with Mary's Mary Wollstonecraft, mm-hmm. Mary Shelley's mother, along along with other works, has made her famous even today, and she is viewed as a founder of Western feminist thinking. Oh her God. father, William, not Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley's father, yeah. the other person in that biological batter, yeah. her father, William Goodwin, was an English journalist political philosopher and novelist. He's considered to be one of the first exponents of utilitarianism and the first modern proponent of anarchism. She is related. Who is this woman? Exactly. So her parents are the founders of anarchism and then separately feminism. (laughs) Sorry, where was she born again? In England. These oh are like political, God. radical philosophers at the time. And then her friend, Lord Byron, yeah. who invited her down to Lake Geneva. So Lord Byron was a, quote, famous philanderer. Yeah. And one of the mo- and was the one that hosted the writing contest. Yes. Um, Lord Byron fathered many children, both in and out of wedlock. Right. One of his very few legitimate children was called Ada Love... Sorry, Ada Byron, who then got married and was called Ada Lovelace... And here's what Ada Lovelace did for the world, who was roughly the same age as Mary throughout this entire time. What did she do? Well, Ada Lovelace, Lord Byron's daughter, was one of the founders of the field of computer science and worked on computation machines in the 1820s. What? In the 1820s, she wrote an article that AI was not possible, that artificial intelligence was not possible. And then here's the quote. Ada's mother, so disgusted with Ada's biological father. So (laughs) Ada's mother, who like regretted that man so much, feared that her daughter, Ada, might grow up to become a poet as mad and bad as her father, Lord Byron. And so she raised her instead to be a mathematician. Ada Lovelace, a scientist and uh, who was as imaginative as Victor Frankenstein, the fictional character, was, she would, in 1843, provide an influential theoretical description of a general-purpose computer a century before one was built by Alan Turing. Sometimes I just <laughs> I just look around, and I don't know if I've come out to you. I'm bisexual. Sometimes I just look around, and I'm like, wow women i do too you know with like those little sparkle emojis next to like women because it's both what ada was able to do and the fact that her mother was like you will not be like your father and she was like will found computer science (laughs) and so here's now where i need to confess something that i didn't tell you when i first walked in so yesterday you were like hey are we like still good to record on thursday and i was like i'm not good to record on thursday did you lie to me on wednesday no i knew i was gonna be ready had i picked a topic yet no (laughs) no 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 no. and then that night i laid in bed had a lot of anxiety and then was reading about all these really interesting people and i came across lord byron and lord byron had all this Really interesting stuff. Yeah. But I was struggling to actually tie him closer into today. Right. So then I saw his daughter, Ada, and I was like, well, maybe that's an angle. But like, no, there's not more. And then I saw that Lord Byron was connected to Frankenstein, and then I also saw that like there were vampires involved. And then when I recognized Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, I was like, oh, I wonder if she's related at all to Mary Wollstonecraft. New York City. 
this is how we talk in Tucson, Arizona. That's a reference to what we do in the shadows. If you need a little bit of serotonin after all of the horror Grant has just laid on us, give it a watch. So basically it was like, wait, hold on. Lord Byron was connected to all these really interesting people. Oh, Mary Shelley is one of those people. Oh, Mary Shelley's life is actually way more interesting. And her book, Frankenstein, far more modern. And actually, as I like read more and more about it at this point now, this morning, I was like, oh, wait, this is actually not only a story I would be excited to talk about, but there's actually stuff in the story that I didn't know and that I think people might be really interested in. So. Hold on, I'm gonna Google Lord Byron really quick because it's gonna drive me absolutely, like you've said a lot of things that like I've connected with Lord Byron in my head, but it's gonna drive me nuts. Famous for taking uh, essentially 14 year old uh, stable boys as lovers, but also married women, loved sleeping with a woman and then sleeping with that woman's immediate relatives and died in Greece helping fund their war against the Ottoman Empire. Holy shit. What? The satiric realism mm-hmm. of Don Juan. What? I it's gonna drive me nuts. Like I don't know what, why. Lord I Byron was like the world's biggest hater. He thought everyone was awful but him, and he published Same. a play or something that then got a really bad review in the Edinburgh newspaper. And so then he wrote a whole play called. English plays and Scottish critics. That was basically like, and people in Scotland don't know art if it smacked them in their face. Fucking, it's Outlander. (laughs) That's really dumb. It's absolutely Outlander. It's your call if you want to keep these last five minutes or not. It's it's going to get capped. It's going to get capped. Okay, so let's go back to the book Frankenstein, which is the last part of this episode. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, this is not a book report. That there is actually some like shocking kind of frame understanding, shaking things that I want to point out to y'all. So first, and I'm sure many of you, along like Maya, have kind of cued in on all of this. Quote, Many people believe that Frankenstein is a deep reflection of the pain and trauma Mary Shelley had experienced as a child. Famous for a mother she never truly knew, and a father who remarried and then essentially abandoned her. Tied to the illustrious poets that had become family friends and the man she loved, she had lost four children and loved ones already by the time Frankenstein was fully published. In part, she might have felt like Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. More likely, she felt like his monster, oh. sewn together from the parts of the many other people who had shaped her life and reputation. Her name was Mary Wollstonecraft Goodwin Shelley. Each name, a connection to a different famous person. Oh my God. Yeah. So she's 25, has accomplished the biggest thing in her life, doesn't kind of get to be her own woman, has loved and been hurt tremendously, and has the rest of her life still ahead of her. I have goosebumps. Thank you. Oh my God. And then this comes from that beautiful New Yorker article. Yeah. I started to lift heavily there at the end, because there were times where I was like, well, I just can't write that better than they did. Yeah, no, I feel that. Um, Frankenstein is four stories in one. It's an allegory, a fable, an epistorally novel, and an autobiography, a chaos of literary fertility that left its very young author at pains to explain her, quote, hideous progeny. 
In the introduction she wrote for a revised edition in 1831, she took up the humiliating question, how I then a young girl came to think of and to deliate upon so very hideous an idea and made up a story in which she virtually erased herself as an author, insisting that the story had come to her in a dream. And that writing it consisted of, quote, making only a transcript of said dream. A century later, when a lurching, grunting Boris Karloff played the creature in Universal Pictures' 1931 production of Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, the monster, prodigiously eloquent, learned, and persuasive in the novel, was no longer merely nameless, but all but speechless. As if what Mary Wollstonecraft Goodwin Shelley had to say was too radical to be heard, an agony untreatable. Oh my God. I know. I know that, like, in her own lifetime, when people would write about her, they called her Goodwin's daughter. Oh. Or Shelley's wife. And when she first publishes Frankenstein, the author is kept anonymous. And it is Percy, her husband, writes an introduction and signs his name. And then people are essentially left to guess for the first couple years as to who wrote Frankenstein. Because she erases, she gets erased. I don't know if it's because she wanted or if it's what was expected or if that's just kind of... Either way, like, it doesn't matter if it was her opinion or yeah. her, like, decision or not, because that's still so powerful that she wasn't listed or, like, credited with that story. It is hard now to think of a way to be connected to more famous people and still try to have your own name in the field. I mean, you think of the kids of, like, famous pop stars or actors, yeah. but oftentimes they have, like, a dad who was, like, just a director or a mom who, like just wrote a column but like both of her parents are considered foundational thinkers of like different schools of thought yeah um and then her husband was like perhaps one of the most celebrated poets at the time and then spent a life surrounded by other people who were famous and so in that world how can she step into it on her own and then (sighs) to then take her pivotal work and to strip it of mary shelley and essentially insert oh my god we're about to get into it okay so getting her Getting her memory wrong and getting the book wrong is the yeah. last section of my notes. The attempts of Mary Shelley's son and daughter-in-law to, quote, Victorianize her memory, because it's during the Victorian era, to Victorianize her memory by censoring biographical <sighs> documents contributed, contributed to a perception of Mary Shelley as a more conventional, less reformist figure that her works would suggest her own timid omissions, because her because her husband dies so early, one of the big things she does after Frankenstein's is she spends years pulling together his poems and putting them in an anthology and publishing it for him. And essentially was like, oh, I just like had all the poems. But she's like an active curator and editor of it. And it's a wild success. And it keeps yeah. his memory alive longer. It's absolutely Alexander Hamilton's yes. wife. Oh my God, that's exactly... <laughs> The For the 3,000 people listening to this and screaming. I literally, I was like, that's like Alexander's wife. Yes. What's the song she sings? Like, they'll remember your name mm-hmm, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm, man. Um, and so then. He didn't deserve her. Not only were people misunderstanding and like watering down her legacy at the time, but we are doing it 
to this day still. The book has largely been stripped of its original meaning, yeah. at least in our understanding of it. Um, thinking uh, that Frankenstein is a cautionary tale about man's power to create and destroy, like many in the tech world view it, mm -hmm. is a shallow reading of what Frankenstein is. Frankenstein is no Mary Shelley's Oppenheimer. Yeah. She wasn't concerned about a man's ability to create and destroy. As one author put it, this is a way to make use of the novel, but it involves stripping out nearly all of the sex and birth. It strips out everything female from the story of Frankenstein. Oh my God. <laughs> because to truly understand Wollstonecraft, her mom, to yeah. truly understand her, you need to understand how radical she was, yeah. how crucial that radical thinking was to her world development, and how that motivates the character of Frankenstein. This monster who will commit murders, but in, in her version, you are too feel for at the end. Yeah. The monster is the villain, but also the person you're cheering for. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, a woman she knew only through what she wrote, um, was many things. She, her mom said this once before she was born. Mary Shelley's mom said this. I conceive it is the duty of every rational creature to attend to its offspring. Wolf's, her mom wrote in uh, Thoughts on Education of Daughters in 1787, 10 years before even giving birth to the author Holy Frankenstein. Shit. Um, as Charlotte Gordon notes in her dual biography, Romantic Outlaws, which was kind of the name of this school of writing, yeah. Mary's mother first met her fellow political radical, William Goodwin, in 1791 at a dinner party hosted by the publisher Thomas Paine, who wrote Rights of Man and I think also Common Sense. The original T. Paine. Yeah, a little bit. Apparently, Mary and uh, Goodwin, her father, like her mom and dad, yeah. when they first met, were, quote, mutually displeased with each other. It's an enemies to lovers arc. That's my favorite <laughs> kind of trope. An enemies to lovers trope produced the author of Frankenstein, a real life version of it, too. And where did it happen? Thomas Paine's dining room as they talked about their various what? stuff. I know. So when I said I thought I was done, and then I got to look at the second half of an article, and I was like, I'm not going to be able to go on that run. Oh, <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. Holy I haven't even shit. gotten to the part that I'm most excited to talk to you about. And so if you are, uh, what, like two hours and 15 minutes in, still with us, there's a nugget coming your way. Okay, but first, the enemies to lovers bit. Um, <laughs> Goodwin would later write to a friend that it was obvious that him and Mary's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, were the smartest people in the room and that he couldn't oh. help arguing all evening. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, the mothers, uh, it doesn't help that they have essentially the same name, yeah, yeah. Uh, wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women and it, that appeared in 1792. The next year, Goodwin published Political Justice in 1793. Um, oh my God. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft then had an affair with an American oh, diplomat, which cute. produced a child out of wedlock shortly after the child was born. Um, the American diplomat skipped town. Keep it up, USA, USA. No, that's USA. Uh, but it was that daughter that would die when Mary was like 20. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like the, the half yeah. sibling. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Her name was Fanny. Um, oh. And then shortly after, Mary and Goodwin would start hooking up and produce a child, and they got married, not because they believed in the institution of marriage. They're like, oh, they shit. didn't. But kind of like, that way the daughter wouldn't be born out of wedlock. Oh. Um, 
Goodwin's daughter would bore the name of his dead wife as if she could be brought back to life. Another afterbirth. Why? Because Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, died 11 days after birth when a physician reached up her, I think, vaginal canal into her uterus and with his bare, grimy fingers removed afterbirth. That's when she died? And what's what's so critical to understand, too, is that Mary Wollstonecraft's whole political view was that it is deeply unethical to exert control over another person's bodies. We're not even talking about abortion at the time because it's 1790s. She's like, kings over serfs, landlords over peasants, men over women. It is unethical to assert that kind of control over another person's body. And that is how she dies. That is how her mother passes away. And then how does her father deal with that? Because it's super common not to name the child right away during this time. Names her directly after her now deceased mother. Oh my God. And so it is through all of these complex, and this is the part that I wrote. So you did the target lady hands, I did. <laughs> I did. I got a little excited again. <laughs> um, so to understand Frankenstein, the book, it is complex and compelling, both revolutionary and counter-revolutionary. In one book, sorry, in one breath, the book seems to denounce violent revolution as only being able to eat its own young, much like what's yeah. happening in France yeah. at the time. In the other, it denounces the free use of another person's body, like kings over peasants or men over women, much like her mother had argued. Oh my God. Mary Wollstonecraft Goodwin Shelley took pains that readers would understand the sympathies that lied not only with Dr. Frankenstein, who will see several of his own close friends die, and whose suffering is dreadful, but also with the creature Dr. Frankenstein would create, whose suffering is worse. The art of the book lies in the way Shelley nudges readers' sympathies, page by page, line by line even sometimes, from Dr. Frankenstein to his creature, even when it comes to the creature's vicious murders, first of Dr. Frankenstein's little brother, then of his best friend, and then of his bride, much evidence suggests that she succeeded in winning people over. Quote, the justice is indisputably on the creature's side wrote one critic in 1824. And his sufferings are, to me, touching to the last degree. You end up feeling for the monster in Mary Shelley's book, who, at one point, looks at Dr. Frankenstein and begs, make me happy, a clear stand-in for love me. Oh my God! (laughs) So when you think about that as the monster that you're supposed to understand, how do we go from that to like the slurred, slow, dumb speech? Yeah. Racism. (gasps) Oh my God! Among many moral (gasps) and political ambiguities of Shelley's novel is the question of whether Victor Frankenstein is to be blamed for creating the monster, usurping the power of God and of women, or for failing to love, care for, and educate it. The Frankenstein is Oppenheimer model considers only the former, which makes for a weak reading of the novel. Much of Frankenstein participates in the debate over the abolition of slavery, as several critics, both then and now, acutely observe. 
See, the revolution Mary Shelley was most interested was not the revolution happening in France, yeah. right next door. But the one that was happening in one of France colonies, Haiti, when the yes. world's only slave revolt was rising up. Because Mary Shelley and her husband, Percy, or lover, Percy Shelley, were both adamant slavery abolitionist who refused to ever drink sugar because of the way it was produced. They lived by the motto. Um, oh my God. So Mary Shelley intentionally incorporates this like read on like, you have created this monster. You failed to care for this monster. And then it is out of a lack of love that this thing has become from creature to monster. And now you're afraid of it, which is an exact parallel explanation for what's happening in the 1830s when people are like, sure, slavery's bad, but how can you free slaves? How could a person ever forgive someone for the state that they had been in? Frankenstein, if you read Mary Shelley's abolitionist political feelings mm -hmm. into it, and if you understand her father's anarchist ideologies and her mother's own feminist thinking yeah. understands that what Frankenstein is actually about is that failing to care for enslaved Africans is what created them into this force that you were afraid of to begin with. And thus the responsibility lies with Dr. Frankenstein, not the creature. Both Shelley's closely followed the debate on abolition, both in the years before and after the writing of the book Frankenstein. Together, they read several books about Africa and the West Indies. Percy Shelley was among those abolitionists who urged a gradual emancipation, fearing that the enslaved, so long and so violently oppressed and denied an education, would, if unconditionally freed, seek vengeance. He asked, can he who the day before was a trampled slave suddenly become liberal-minded, forbearing, and independent? A question absolutely explored in Frankenstein. Oh my God. Frankenstein has always been about race. Specifically, it was about black people. Yeah. In the first stage production, which Mary Shelley oversees in London in the 1820s, early 1830s, the actor who plays the creature wears blue paint as his face. Later into the 1800s, the blue paint will be replaced with blackface. Mm -hmm. And even in the 1930s, when Universal Pictures creates Frankenstein, yeah. they've subbed the blackface for green paint. Oh, is it all gone? No, oh. because how does, Doc, how does Frankenstein's monster, how does the creature die in the 1932 version? He's lynched. I didn't even realize. Holy shit! Yeah. And, and so she wrote that when she was how old? When she's 19. What? Yeah. And then this is the last oh paragraph. Oh my god! After writing all of that, surviving all that tragedy, when she comes back to writing, here's my final paragraph. She chose as a theme behind the novel she wrote eight years after Frankenstein. Okay, so published in 1826, when okay. the author was 28 years old and is only two years after her husband passes, oh. she writes the book, The Last Man. It is set in the 21st century. Yeah. When only one man endures, the lone survivor of a terrible plague, having failed for all of his imagination, for all of his knowledge, to save the life of a single person. Oh and that's it. God. That is the un 
the misunderstood, radical, deeply complex history of Frankenstein and the even more impressive woman who created it. I am obsessed with her now. Same. I knew it had like deep meaning and stuff, obviously, from like taking AP lit. Right. But like, that's insane. Like, it's not only just her own personal views, her own personal life experience that plays into it. It's also like the socioeconomic problems that are occurring in the world that she also plays into it. And that is like so intensely powerful. And the fact that not only was it like well-received now, it was well-received back then, even by men who maybe didn't agree with her because they could see themselves in the monster. Like she wrote a universally understandable intellectual piece. Right. And that's at 19. Having lost one child already and actively nursing a second. Oh my God. And what's so fascinating too, when you kind of start to unpack everything is that if she is using her childhood experience of like being cast away by her father, (sighs) of being this like collage of all these other people that are connected to her, that people know of, but they don't know her. Like she's clearly Dr. Frankenstein. But then the story of, sorry, she's clearly Dr. Frankenstein's creature. She's clearly a monster. But then the arc that the monster goes on that explores concepts that both her father and her mother explored in their own career, but then brings it to what was at the time a contemporary lens and understands like the Haitian slave revolution to it. And so then to create this like (sighs) eloquent, compelling voice to this monster that she both sees herself as, but also sees as like a vehicle to explore these concepts and then to take that piece of work written by a young woman who had been like broken by the world several times and then to take this like almost like activist figure of justice and to water him down into like a slurred speech dumb bumbling many of us know the 1932 movie or at least parts of it character who gets lynched at the end which in both in some ways is a perfect personification of what she was trying to argue and signs that much like her mother would have issues with today's society, so would Mary Shelley. She's also like taking herself out of it, I feel like, because she's not making it a death that's like, oh, this character died because other people didn't care for it. She's like literally taking it. She's like, this represents me, but also I need it to represent this other thing that I care so deeply for. So I'm going to make it more like directly represent that. So it hits home. Right. Which is insane. So then you have all this about the story, which is really interesting. Like what she actually is writing. But then the way that the novel is written, it's Uh actually written as a series of letters from, I think they said Antarctica. Oh, really? From a person who has met this deranged scientist called Dr. Frankenstein. And it is through these letters that, like, the story gets told. So you learn the creature's plight, not firsthand, not secondhand, but kind of third going into fourth hand. Like, at least with the way parts of the book was written. I truthfully have actually not read the book. It is in my research. I was like, oh, I misunderstood it. Oh, some of these movies were way off. And then I ended it, hopefully maybe with the way some of you guys are, with, like, I think she. I, I think, think I, I need to read, read it. This. I think I have it upstairs. Yeah, maybe not cover to cover, but I mean, like, as we get to get into September and October, I yeah. think it's <laughs> honestly not to get too sappy here. Maybe it's the old fashioned. 
I think I owe it to Mary Shelley if I'm going to talk about her legacy for two hours to then spend some time with the pivotal work that defined no, even today for life. And I've always like gotten mad about the fact ever since like I took AP Lit and I found out that it's not Frankenstein, it's Frankenstein's <laughs> monster. Or, no, because they did Frankenstein as a play. No, a musical at my probably high probably like Young Frankenstein. Yeah, stuff Young like Frankenstein, that. stuff like yeah. that. I think it was then that I figured out that it wasn't Frankenstein, it was Frankenstein's monster. And ever since then, I've had that like holier than thou, like, well, it's not actually Frankenstein, right. it's Frankenstein's monster. But now I'm like even more mad right. that like I'm going to see costumes at like Spirit Halloween of Frankenstein, of the right. green. No, it's going to make me really mad now that they're green. <laughs> we are going to be the most annoying people at every Halloween party. Ooh, we're already annoying. We have a <laughs> podcast. We actually did an episode about Frankenstein. I don't know if you have a I don't know if you listened to it yet. <laughs> oh my God. Actually, the whole series is actually really great, but this one, yeah. Because, you know, here's now here's a little detail that yeah. was mentioned like an hour ago that I want us to kind of like think back to in the original stage play when listing the characters' names. It was like Dr. Frankenstein played by like John Smith, that it was blank and Mary Shelley thought that most appropriate. Both in terms of Mary <laughs> Shelley's like, I don't own this name. This name's a conglomeration of everyone else. But then also the story that Frankenstein's monster is supposed to represent <sighs> is like millions of like nameless, abused and taken advantage of enslaved people that is why she thought it was appropriate not because monster has no name funny like that's not she it's because i am nameless none of these names belong to me but the actual story that this is also relating to the oppressed people that are never gonna who be are named. never gonna be named who are never gonna be named Oh my god. So when I like came over with those two frescas in my hand and You're I was like, like I'm so excited <laughs> I was like this story in a way that Oh my god you kinda of hope when you start to research like rattled me a couple times, even when I was doing the research. This is this has <laughs> is having the same effect on me as like oh fuck, what's it called? Um I don't wanna do it any injustice. I need to research it for a second. Portrait of Ross in LA. Hmm. Okay, so I didn't learn about this until... Can I ask? Yes. Is it a pile of candy in the corner? Yes. Okay, so I'm aware. Okay. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, mm. I took a course in um, art in college. Like, we didn't... Because I went to an all-engineering school, so we didn't have a ton of, like, history or, like... Just enough to be, like, machines killing people's bad. Machine killing people bad. <laughs> yeah. So we didn't have a ton of, like, liberal arts classes where we could learn, like, other languages. But they... We did have to take, um, like, classes that weren't just science and stuff. And so I, I took, like, environmental impact classes mm. and then one about, like... Uh, I don't remember what the name of the class was, but it's a, like studying how science has impacted art. Sure. And it was basically just an art class, which is really cool because now I get to go to art museums and be like, hey, Casey. <laughs> <laughs> How does this painting make you feel? The purpose of all art education at some level is superiority. Oh, I did it to Tyler. <laughs> I did it to Tyler at the Louvre. Oh, God. Oh, it made me feel to so good. To be there with you. <laughs> oh, it made me the feel money so I'd give. good. I was like. Our dear friend. Yeah, Tyler. because he, he would be standing in front of a painting. And this isn't like verbatim, but this is an example of what happened. I was like, he was like, wow, I really love this painting. And I was like, why do you love this painting? And he would be like, it just feels like so safe. And like I love the colors and like this, this and that. Mm. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, you why you love that painting, right? 
because it's built like a triangle with the base at the bottom. And that's how paintings were made to make you feel safe and secure. And then we would see another painting of like a lion or like a lion killing a zebra. And I was like, how does this painting make you feel? He's like, unsafe. And I was like, that's because it's a triangle and it's balanced on its tip. <laughs> you mansplaining art to Tyler. Oh, it was beautiful. Do you know who would absolutely love that? Mary Wollstonecraft. It made me feel so good. A woman in France putting a man down. Mary Wollstonecraft would be like, run it back. Run it back. I've done it to Casey. I've done it to, don't go to a museum with me. Yeah. I'm not fun. But you know, I have a good time. Fun little fusion of, I think, of several stories tonight. One of my favorite, and this is never a first date location mm -hmm. because I like it too much to burn that mm -hmm. way, but it's a second date location if I'm really excited okay. about you. Or if we're on a third date, I'm excited about you. The That's MoMA? what it means. No, the MCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art That's downtown. That's what I meant. Yeah, okay. sorry. We go up to the top. The, where there's the view, the view and, and you the get a drink bar, and yes. you just like there for a second and the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver is downtown oh, and it overlooks beautiful. the cityscape and there's always like some unknown indie band playing live music in the corner so and there's eight people and everyone's wearing something insanely different it's like the airport but classy and then you after like had a chance to drink and stuff like that and like have done a little of that like warm up talk yeah. of like so how's your day been and yeah. stuff like that you then walk through the three layers of the mm. MCA and like talk about the art and then you empty out onto the city street of Denver and then one of you goes, hey, do you want to grow a drink? That's beautiful. Oh, I know. Go That's on a date a with me. One. It's a good time. <laughs> I also do, part of this class was going to the MCA. Nice. I like did it, I don't know if it was extra credit or if it was like an assignment or something, but they had an exhibit there and I don't remember the name of the artist. I'll have to look it up, but she, it was a she. She created, it was mainly environmental impact type art. Sure. And one of it was like, like uh, springs, you know, that you play with when you're like a kid and it's all warped into this like giant bubble. And oh, I have pictures cool. of it that I can show you guys, but it like, even in the picture, it doesn't look real. And it's just, Mind-boggling to but, see. Yeah, but I love that a book about sorry a story about literature ends with you and I just like geeking out about art. I for love a bit. art so much, and it makes me because especially going to an engineering. No, school. go ahead, keep talking. So I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just looking at your huge wall of art behind us. The thing that receives more compliments than I do. I listen. I and this this like little snippet. I don't even think shows my favorite pieces. I think my favorite pieces are probably upstairs. Do we need to have some of this for the next thing that we're about to record? We can probably do some of it, but I okay. want to talk about this piece since okay. I talked to, since I mentioned it. So the story about Mary Shelley and like how impactful mm. it is and how many different layers mm -hmm. there are is like hitting me in the same way. I think this might have been one of the first pieces that our teacher showed us where I was like, oh my God. And it's not like I'm gonna start crying because I like it's not that it's gonna make me cry. It's gonna like sit like heavy True. on your like chest, you know? It's like a very different feeling, but this artist was, is Felix Gonzalez Torres, mm. and he created a piece of art called, um, oh my God, I think it's just called, quote, untitled. Like that's okay. the name of it, because it, it's a, like what Mary Shelley was doing of like this person will never be named. Nameless. Yes, and then parentheses, portrait of Ross in LA. And I don't know the full, I don't remember mm. the full story of who he was, but he was gay. Um, he or was, had, if I remember correctly, Ross is the boyfriend of yes. the person that created the so, exhibition. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if they were out and together okay. or like 
or not, um, but he created this piece of art, and this was during the AIDS epidemic, and how it was supposed to kind of represent how AIDS eats away at you. Mm -hmm. And so what he did, and modern art, I drives me fucking nuts when people don't understand there's depth to it. Because sure. people will see like a canvas on a wall with one line through it. And they're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It doesn't represent any talent. It doesn't represent this. And it drives me nuts because it's never, especially in modern art or contemporary art, it's never about the talent of the right. artist. It's about the meaning behind the art. And so this piece of art is not even paint on a canvas like Grant kind of alluded to it is literally a pile of candy in the corner right and he encouraged people every time this installation is installed it's encouraged for everyone who walks by to enjoy this piece of art take a piece of candy and eat it right. and so slowly this pile of candy dissolves into nothing and there's this thing too where like the candy is wrapped and set it's, it's not like a hundred tootsie rolls it's no. like this massive pile of bright colorful art. candy and so it also represents how like hiv aids robbed us of these like beautiful yes. colorful artistic people, people who's withered away and then one day there was nothing left and, and they just disappeared. I, it's called a portrait of Ross because yeah. that was his lover or whoever. And he weighed 175 pounds yep. at the beginning. And the amount of candy set to be in the corner at the beginning is 175 pounds. pounds. Yeah. And that just is, it's like the same kind of where it's just like, there's so many, every single detail you kind of focus in on has its own meaning. And whether or not that's a meaning that the artist initially kind of, intended it's still a meaning right. and that's what's so beautiful that's what i think is so beautiful about contemporary art because it is vague in that way that every person that views it can take their own life experience and apply their own meaning to it and then take away their own perception of it instead Absolutely. of like you see the last supper or right. something like those beautiful pieces like mona lisa all of the they're but stunning there's a specific takeaway you're supposed to be they're, yeah and they're yeah. beautiful they're artistically done the the technique is incredible but it isn't like i'm seeing this piece and i am applying my own life experience to it and having my own deep emotional reaction right. you know and like i can cry i can look at the mona well, lisa and have an emotional reaction it's not the same i think though. the thing that you are talking a lot about but i just i keep waiting for you to like to say it mm -hmm. which is that like oftentimes I'm bad at saying things art, especially no you're not you're fantastic <laughs> oftentimes the most powerful art isn't even really for the audience mm -hmm. but it is for the creator to process what has happened to them yeah so portrait of ross Frankenstein. Oh my God. Are all of these are just examples of artists being like, here is the horrible thing that has happened to me, mm -hmm. but it's created such human expression out of me yeah. that I, it's created something beautiful. And yeah. I, don't, I don't even think it's about like grieving or moving on. I think it's just the human representation. Of it. Yeah, the human representation and the human inclination of with these deep, powerful emotions, mm -hmm. I need to express them in some way. And this is a shout out to all girlies with poetry in their notes app. We're going to get over this breakup, girly. You and me both. <laughs> even if Grant will never let me see the poetry. Correct, because I will never get over anything ever. Yeah, <laughs> but to bring it all back, my therapist today even said sometimes it's not even about like saying something because it's upsetting you and hoping to like work something out sometimes it's just about saying something to someone who you um, you know will understand mm. the problem that you're perceiving and that is exactly why over the last 
seven, eight months, mm -hmm. I have really valued having a chance to sit next to you. Oh. This isn't a goodbye or anything. This is just me being like, this is why. I, I don't like take it. compliments well, Grant. So I have to say bye now. Also, I have to use the restroom if that helps mm -hmm. light, lighten the mood. Yeah. We anyway. appreciate you sitting through the episode. Hopefully, you learned something new. And Casey sitting at the top of the stairs. Exactly. Like a kid for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, y'all. Um, we're on social media at Well I Laughed on Patreon at Well I Laughed Podcast. And then if you want to email us, um, we're at Well I Laughed Pod at gmail.com. And you will get a response from me unless it's something technical, in which case I will screenshot it from Maya <laughs> and be like, you have a message for you. Yeah. So um, until then, y'all. Yeah. Message us. We Absolutely. love you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.